The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. And welcome to episode 28 of The Wizard Files, the special podcast series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. This time around, we're talking to a man who was part of the next generation of staffers who brought new life to the magazine in the 2000s before finding his way to an associate editor position while getting his geek on. We're happy to welcome to the show, Jesse Thompson. How you doing? Adam, how are you, sir? Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is very cool to have you here to talk and offer your stories to the world here just like so many of your co-workers have yeah yeah and now that you've made your way down to jt you're, you're really getting to the drags man <laughs> it's time <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we'll have plenty to talk about today, but I think we'll start out by going back to the beginning, finding out how it all started. So, Jesse, tell us, how did comics enter your life? Well, you know, like a lot of the guys who you've had on the show, I'm your typical child of the 80s, born in the late 70s. But, you know, as a young kid, comics were kind of all over the house. G.I. Joe issues, Transformers issues. I was a big Spidey and his Amazing Friends viewer, a big Super Friends and Super Powers viewer. So like most kids, you know, there was always something that the parents would buy or grandparents would buy to, to kind of tie my younger brother and I over. But I do have a very distinct memory of the comic that hooked me. Uh, it was Fantastic Four, number 299, purchased off of a spinner rack at the local pharmacy. <laughs> I'm sure that issue doesn't immediately spring to mind, but I guarantee if you go and look at that cover, you'll go, oh yeah, I can, I can see how a kid would start their collection in earnest here. For one thing, back then, the FF was still using the world's greatest comic magazine tag. Up oh, top. yes. And, you know, when the, that issue came out, I think in December 1986, so I was seven, just about to turn eight. And, you know, kids that age, they don't understand hyperbole. So that tagline at the top, I'm like, oh, well, clearly this is the one I have to buy. It's, it's the world's <laughs> greatest. But the issue is it was a John Basima cover with She-Hulk punching the thing through a yellow brick wall while you see Spider-Man on the other side just kind of, you know, hanging out watching, wondering, what's going on? So, you know, the colors just popped. It's this bright yellow, bright red. She-Hulk was in her FF uniform. At that time, I was like, She-Hulk's in the Fantastic Four. What's going on? Why is she punching the thing? So, yeah, it was it was awesome. I was hooked. Uh, and from then on, uh, I was fortunate to have a mom who would encourage reading all the time. She was an easy mark in terms of, oh, hey, can, can I have another comic? Another, another, another. So anytime we were at the grocery store or the drugstore, if there was a spinner rack, I could usually talk her into one or two books. Well, Jesse, I got to tell you, uh, I know that cover very well. That was my first issue of Fantastic Four that See? I grabbed out of a back issue bin. So it was a few years later, but it was one of those things that, yeah, you just, you can't deny it. A thing is being a sad sack at a bar and she's trying to knock him out of it, you know, and <laughs> get him back to be, you know, he's kind of mouthing off to her. And yeah, the whole issue, he's just kind of dragging his feet because Johnny Storm's going to marry Alicia and things like, can you believe he asked me to be his best man? And yeah, She-Hulk just knocks him around. I think they go to a, an abandoned building and she just knocks him around for a few pages yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, to, to knock the sad sackness out of him. But yeah, I was, you know, this was late 86 and then into 87 and 88 when I really got hooked. That was kind of the height of grim and gritty stuff, but I, I was never really attracted to Wolverine, Punisher, even Batman at that time. Marvel was doing kind of a lot of Silver Age throwback kind of covers. I think for a while, Ron Friends 
and Joe Sennett, I think we're doing Thor, Cap, and FF covers every month. And those just always really jumped out to me. So those were like the first three books <laughs> I collected religiously. That's wild. Yeah. And, and so as the 90s rolled around, were you an early adopter of Wizard Magazine? Were you ever in like on the collecting side or for you, was it always just the stories and just entertainment every month? More entertainment. I was always a quantity over quality guy. Like I also remember as a kid watching an episode of Double Dare and one of the kids who was a contestant, you know, Mark Summers is like, tell us about your interests. And he's like, oh, I collect comics. And Mark Summers is like, how many do you have? And the kid's like, oh, I got about a hundred. And I'm thinking a hundred, man, I can, I can get more than a hundred comics within like six months. <laughs> so, uh, so I, from an early age, I was always scouring quarter bins, 50 cent bins. And yeah, Wizard, I got in pretty early because I remember, again, bought it off a of spinner rack. First issue was number six, which was the Sam Keith Hulk cover. The green cover, not the Gray Hulk oh, variant okay. edition. Yeah, I got to clarify. And that was before the magazine was polybagged. So, you know, you could just pick it up and flip through it. And I had an awareness of other comic industry fan publications. Like I knew about comic scene, but I never really read any of that stuff. I think just... Wizard being more or less comic sized and having those original covers, it just, you know, it grabbed me. And I, I think that first issue, I could be wrong, but I bought that one. It was so dog-eared because I read it over and over and over again. So, yeah, from, from there, every month, allowance went toward Wizard. Wow. Okay, so then what were the events as you continued reading, you continued collecting, that led you to being hired at Wizard Magazine? So it was a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time. Like most people our age, you know, I, I kind of went in and out of my comic fandom. You know, by the time I got to high school, got enough to drive, I decided I think I want to spend my allowance on CDs and gas money and trying to go on dates. But, you know, every few months I would come back to comics, come back to comics. So by the time I went away to college, I was pretty much back into full-time collecting. You know, I'm from Tennessee. We're talking from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, but I went to Middle Tennessee State University. Uh, I'm actually a magazine journalism major. And I took this course, you know, it was, I think it was just magazine writing. And our professor, very old school guy, Dr. Heimbaugh, part of our final grade was that we had to, every story we wrote for the class, we had to submit it to a publication and prove that we submitted it. I mean, email was around, obviously, but this was early 2000, like year 2000. So, you know, I, I had written an article about, you know, kids don't really read comics anymore, you know, snore, and which wasn't really true. But then the article <laughs> article had kind of a hopeful end. Like I'd interviewed my local comic shop guy in Murfreesboro and it kind of had a hopeful ending like, but, you know, kids are super into Harry Potter books right now. So and, you know, the X-Men movie is about to come out. So kids are going to be wild about comics again soon. So I wrote this article. It was not very good. Professor liked it. And I just packaged it up. I, I printed out a hard copy and sent it directly to Pat McCallum at Wizard. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, to, to get my grade, I just had to show like a certified mail receipt to my professor. I'm like, here, Dr. Heimbaugh, here's one of the articles I sent. And totally never expected to hear anything back. But I got a really nice email from Pat who said, hey, man, thanks for sending this article. Not sure if it's something we could ever use, but, you know, I'm going to pass it along to one of our other editors and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know. But and even, you know, even that I was over the moon. I never expected to hear anything back. And within a couple of weeks, 
I got a call from Justin Jones, one of the editors at Wizard, who was like, hey, we've got a couple of small market-related stories in the back of the magazine, close to the price guide. This was back when they were still doing the the net gains section. Oh, yeah. And he's like, hey, would you, you know, you want to try out a couple of things? Uh, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> of course. Because like I said, I was in school as a magazine journalism major. And at the time, working for Wizard or working for Rolling Stone were my two dream jobs. So to kind of have this opportunity to freelance dropped on my plate was wild. I wish I could remember what my first actual article assignment was. It might have been about CGC because I wrote a lot of CGC related stuff early on. And they also gave me gimmick of the month, which was just like it says, it was a quarter page column close to the price guide every month. And those were a lot of fun because I would get to call different creators. You know, Justin, I think, sent me a list of six or seven and be like, here you go. We'll only run one of these a month, but go crazy. The first Comic Pro I ever spoke with on the phone was Joe Jusco. Oh, cool. And it was for Marvel Team Up number 150, which had a photo cover of uh, Captain America and Spider-Man. And Joe Jusco was actually wearing the Captain America costume because he was a, a bodybuilder. Uh, pretty buff dude. Yeah. So called Joe Jesco. He's like, ha, 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 oh man, I I remember this. Yeah, this was great. He gave me a couple of great quotes and then like hung up and he calls me back two minutes later. He's like, hey man, I, I know what these wizard guys want. Here, here's a here's a better quote. You know, I think it was something probably a little more off color, you know, a little he was he was going for a little more humor. And I'm like, ha ha, this is great. Hung it, hang up the phone. Two minutes later, he calls me back. He's like, I got it. Okay, I got an even better one. This this is what you <laughs> definitely put this in the magazine. So he was awesome. Another one I did was kind of the Marvel 25th anniversary. Do you remember how for one month all the covers had that same border of oh, all yeah. the Marvel characters? Mm -hmm. Nobody, Justin was like, we're not sure who the artist is. We think it's John Romita, but we want you to call Romita and we want you to call Jim Shooter. And at the time, I was not really privy to a whole lot of comics knowledge. Uh, I, even in 2000, I wasn't really online reading a lot of comic stuff. So I didn't really know that there was... At that time, some some bad blood between Shooter and Wizard because a lot of the former Valiant guys, you know, like Fred Pierce and the like, had gone on to work at Wizard. That's and right. I guess, yeah. yeah, Shooter had kind of had a falling out with them when they kicked him out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, but Shooter was totally totally nice, and you know, you'd never you never would have known. Like he definitely didn't treat me like some Wizard scumbag. Um, he was happy to talk about it the best he could. But the, you know, at the, at the time in college, I was renting a house. I had two roommates, one of which was my best friend since high school, this guy David. And uh, I'd left a message for John Romita, so he calls back. And I'm I'm not home. I'm in class. And my my best friend David answers. And this old guy's just like, "This is Ramita. This is Ramita. Where's Jesse? Look for Jesse Thompson." My roommate has no idea. He's like, "What? Ramita? Who are you? <laughs> Where? Jesse's not here, man. I don't know." So I get home. He's like, "Some crazy old guy named Ramita called." I'm like, "Oh man, that was John Ramita. What did he say? What did he say?" Could... <laughs> so yeah, those were those were my my very early days. And uh, Justin liked what I was turning in, so I I'm pretty sure consistently for about two years, I was writing market-related stories and then just kind of little goofy gimmick-related stories. And I had another column about just junk that was sold on eBay. It was called Sold Online because that was in the early days of eBay as well, where, you know, that, that was before anything and everything was posted. So I would really have to do some digging for some obscure comic and pop culture-related stuff. 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting to seeing uh, what was going on in that section because uh, with yours, you know, the first one that we found where you were dealing with the CGC, like you said, it was like a new thing in 2000, you know, to be to get your books graded and things like that. You know, it was called the Magnificent Seven here in the net gains section. And so like the top books, they were saying that, that actually got a, a 10.0 grade was like a, an issue of Spawn number one, an issue of Spawn number five. Now, just to give you an idea of how the market has changed, so the spawn number one was valued, you know, having that CGC of ten at four hundred and fifty dollars. Man, that's that's so wild, and that came up fairly recently because my nine-year-old son Wiley is obsessed with comics, and I don't know if it's going to last. I'm just having fun with it. He and I are having fun with it together at the moment. But at our local comic shop, he loves the stories, but he's also obsessed with the, the collectible side and the value side. But he likes to look at the CGC graded comics. And, you know, he, he was telling the woman working there, like, you know, my uh, my dad used to work for Wizard. He actually wrote an article about the uh, the first Perfect Ten graded comic. And I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spawn, spawn number one. I remember. <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten that it was only, you know, only valued at 450 bucks 20 years ago. <laughs> That is insane. Now, I had a I had a question for you just, you know, regarding, like you're saying, you know, you're starting to get to know some of the comics pros out there. You're connecting with them. Did you feel like you had an understanding from connecting with the way the pros interacted with you? How big and how influential Wizard was? Did you ever see that firsthand, whether it was directly or just kind of with your office mates and the kind of stuff you, and access you saw that Wizard got? You know, this was kind of a weird thing where one of the gimmick of the month deals was about Superman 75 and the black armband. And Justin was like, Hey, call up Mike Carlin, who at that, I think at that point was still an editor at DC. And I think Carlin had been the editor on Superman 75, but I called him up and he's like, you're from wizard. I can't talk to you. I was like, Oh, you can't. He's like, he was like, did you go through a B and C channel? Like basically anytime wizard had at that point, you know, if wizard wanted to contact a DC, all media requests slash inquiries had to go through the DC PR person, which I didn't know. And I was like, no, I'm just calling you. He's like, well, I can't talk to you until, you know, you talk to this person over in our PR office. Okay. Sorry. Wow. So there was no wizard direct hotline. No, no. And you know, then I had to call Justin and Justin was like, oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry about that. Yeah. Go through this person first. But you know, I, I never had anybody, even as a freelancer, you know, no creator ever stood me up, I guess. Everybody always seemed excited because I think at that point, you know, wizards still have a lot of cachet and creators were like, you want to talk about this issue of, you know, I think Tom Derenick, I talked to him about an issue of protectors, the one that had the bullet hole or the yeah. bullet He was like, and I want to say he was working for his dad because uh, I called this number and his dad was like, who you want Tom? He's like, okay, Tom. Tom. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, even from those early days, it seemed like, you know, other than having to go through some some proper channels PR wise, everybody was always super psyched to talk to a wizard guy. You know, so I, I considered myself very fortunate, you know, and it's not like I was I wasn't like a boots on the ground reporter at that point either. You know, I was basically get, I was getting fed article topics. I was getting fed all the contact info and it was you know, it was a great gig and pretty easy money. So, yeah. And so what events then led to you actually joining the staff full time and working out? 
of the Wizard offices in Congress, New York? So I graduated in December 2001. Didn't really have any job leads. So I moved back in with my parents temporarily. Uh, and the plan was for me to move to Austin, Texas, because my then girlfriend, now wife, was working down there. So I was like, I'll move to Austin. I'll get a, a job at a music magazine. You know, it'll be it'll be that easy. That simple. But uh, Justin, the editor who I had worked with pretty much strictly for two straight years, who I'd gotten to be buddies with. He was, he and I were both obsessed with music. He loved the Beach Boys. So he was constantly, you know, sending me emails about the Beach Boys or, hey, have you heard? Here's a, here's, I want you to have this Beach Boys album. It's really good. I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool, man, cool. But Justin gave me a heads up that they had a research assistant position opening up. And at the time, basically everyone got their foot in the door at the actual office as an intern or as a research assistant. So I applied, talked to Joe Yanarella on the phone. Uh, I know you've heard lots of stories about Joe. Joe. Uh, yep. Joe was all business. ABJ, all business Joe. He was like, hey, do you want to come up for an interview? And I was like, yeah, yeah. So, but if it, you know, internally, I'm freaking out a little bit because this, we were still just a couple of months removed from 9-11. I'd never been to New York. I'd, you know, flown by myself. I mean, I was, <laughs> I was an adult at that point, but, you know, I was still like, man, okay, I'm flying into New York. What's going to happen here? You know, he's like, okay, we're going to get your rental car. You know, make sure you save all your seats from the tolls. We're going to put you up in a little motel, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. At this point, I really did not know, you know, that Wizard was not in the city proper. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Congress, New York is this, you know, kind of tiny, adorable hamlet, but flew up, met Joe. I kind of assumed, you know, we would, we'd talk about the position and maybe we'd shoot the breeze about comics a little bit. But I think the first thing Joe said when we sat down was, you know, no, Jesse, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm not really a comics fan. I don't really read comics. <laughs> you know, my role is to, to get the magazine out, keep the trains running on time, make sure we're efficient, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh man, okay. But we had a good chat. I think how I won Joe over was he was like, you know, I'll be honest, the pay is not great for this, but we've had so many people who, you know, use this as a springboard for future jobs at Marvel or at DC. And I was like, I'm not interested in Marvel or DC. I'm interested in working for Wizard, which, you know, seems like a very youthful, naive thing to say, but I think <laughs> it, it got me in Joe's good graces. Came back to Chattanooga, a couple weeks go by, Justin calls and says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm actually leaving the magazine. I'm, and Justin was from, he's from the South too. He was moving back to Kentucky. He said, I put in a good word for you for the editor spot, just so you know. I'm like, wow, okay. Then Joe calls and says, hey, listen, would you be interested in coming up here for a 30 day trial as an associate editor? And, you know, I, I, I at that point, I wasn't thinking about how am I going to get up there? Where am I going to live? <laughs> I was like, I, I have an opportunity to be an editor, a wizard right out of college. Yeah. Let me at it. Let's do this. So finding lodging was a bit challenging. Um, I wound up staying in a really scary motel called the Raintree Motel, which I'm pretty sure had lots of uh, drugs and prostitution being run out of it. Uh, but it was right up the street from the wizard office and I could pay, you know, I could pay week by week. <laughs> Which is, which is a big thing in case, you know, I couldn't sign a lease anywhere in case I botched this whole thing. And then they had to send me packing back to Chattanooga. But uh, I think about two weeks in, I, I kind of asked for a meeting with Joe, just kind of like, hey, I'm just how, how am I doing? Because, uh, you know, I kind of wanted to know if if I had a job or not. And uh, they said, yeah, this this seems to be working out. It was bizarre in that you see all these faces that you know from the magazine, you know. I know other guys have talked about this, but, you know, oh, there's there's Brian Cunningham. There's Mike Cotton. There's Andy Serwin. Hey, there's Pat. But it's still sort of surreal, you know, because I remember being in the sitting in the lobby and Mike Cotton comes out to use the copier. You know, doesn't say hi. That's Cotton style. <laughs> <laughs> goes, goes back to his office. Um, and at the beginning, 
beginning, early in my tenure, those first few weeks and few months, I don't want to say it was a, a hostile work environment, but I think, and I totally understand to the other guy's credit, they were like, okay, we've got this kid coming in from Tennessee. He's kind of leapfrogged over so many other people here. And I can't speak to the the staff writers at the time. It was, it was Cotton and then uh, Casey Sages and James McDonough. Those are the three staff writers. And I don't know if any of them had designs on an editor position or not. There were two two research assistants there as well. But, uh, you know, they those guys put me through my paces and eventually got to be really tight with all of them. But, yeah, initially I was kind of like, oh, wow, this, these guys don't really like me much. You know, it seems slightly aggressive here. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say that, you know, everybody was putting me through the ringer. I mean, Brian was great. Mel Kylo is to this day, one of my favorite people on the planet Earth. And Andy, Andy and I wound up living in the same apartment complex a couple years after that. And Andy's like a brother to me. So yeah, it was it was a little bumpy there for those first few months. But you know, I've gotten to a groove. And I, as an editor, I think some of the some of those initial sections I worked on, yeah, we, we had a, a price guide editor, but I still oversaw all of the price guide related content. Um secret stash i think andy was still editing book of the month when i started and took that over eventually but you know at the time you know this is early 2002 wizard was doing a lot of like you know comic previews where they'd be like here's eight pages of the first issue of thundercats or eight pages of the first issue of battle of the planets yeah like for example your first issue here where you're in the masthead as associate editor i have it you know the uh september 2002 issue 132 and yeah right in there there's a gi joe comic you know you just get all the pages crammed in there for a gi joe comic preview and stuff like that so it's really interesting that they were doing so much of that hey great way to fill space you know but speaking of which you know you're shepherding some of these features some of these pieces that are coming together so i have to ask is there a particular piece that either you wrote or had a hand in developing that you're most proud of and was it interviewing rebecca remain stamos about the punisher <laughs> in issue 148 interviewing rebecca remain was certainly a highlight that was a phone interview but i had seen her in person and i'm gonna sound like such a creepy stalker <laughs> So to your point about probably the piece I'm most proud of, the issue after that was 149, which was the Thomas Jane Punisher cover. Because the whole time I was at Wizard, I still thought of myself as a writer in addition to an editor. I would try to get my byline in every issue, even if it was just on a sidebar somewhere. Um, it was just a, a point of pride. I want to write something in every issue, even just a, a little bitty thing. I'm not a staff writer, but I like having my name out there. So to that point, it would be awesome to have an actual cover feature. I'd come close to it early when I did a Birds of Prey set visit. Do you remember that super short-lived show? Oh, yes. On the WB? Yeah. Yeah, with and Dina Meyer was with, in it. Yeah. With Dina Meyer. And I flew out and interviewed the whole cast. And the joke was that, you know, before my plane had even landed back in New York, the show had been canceled. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> I had, had actually gotten back and, and we were we were going to do a cover with that, too. Because at the time, Wizard would do two, sometimes three covers per issue. So a lot of of the Hollywood covers had a smaller print run. Should a Birds of Prey cover have come to fruition, it probably would have had a very limited print run. And I think even the, the Thomas Jane Punisher one had a, a small run. But Yeah, I mean, because we're, we're over here with our archive trying to collect all of them. And yeah, some of these are really obscure and hard to come by. Like, even the, the issue that I have of 149, the cover I'm looking at right now is just a Secret War cover, yep. which is probably the most widely distributed, not the Thomas Jane one. I'm still trying to pick that up. So yeah, let's 
smile that I'm, I'm open to your article here, which is like a day in the life on the set type thing here. Yeah, yeah. I got to be an extra and they wound up flying me down to Tampa a couple of times. They were filming in Tampa because Tampa was super cheap. And I think that's how they got Travolta in the movie because he had a house down there. And Travolta actually stood me up for an interview. But, you know, at that point, for some of these Hollywood studio properties, you know, we would do several months worth of coverage. You know, I think for Punisher, you know, I I did the Rebecca Romaine interview and then I did this feature about day in the life of an extra. I think I had done another spread just about the armory, about all the different weapons that Thomas Jane used in the movie. But the first time I was on set, I was supposed to be an extra in this this diner scene, but it kept raining. And I don't know why, I guess because they wanted sunlight to reflect through the windows a certain way, but they wound up canceling that shoot, even though we I'm hanging out with all the extras just kind of sitting around all day. And Rebecca Romaine's hanging out with some of the other cast people on the other side of the set. The extras did not mingle with the talent so to speak. But anyway, I did follow up chat with her. She was great. The funny thing too, is all interviews were done there in the wizard bullpen, you know, where there's four of us. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking to Rebecca Romain on the phone. And as soon as I hang up, you know, everybody's giving me a hard time because, you know, I'm, <laughs> was probably being a little too flirty with her or something. But yeah, the, the day in the life of an extra was a lot of fun. I mean, the scene I thought I was in got cut. Aww. Wizard had gone to a press screening. You know, I'm sitting next to Matt Sinreich, who had kind of, you know, he was our Hollywood liaison at the time. He kind of worked with all the studios on putting all this together. So I'm like, okay, man, here it is. See, here it's coming up. Here's Thomas Jane. He's dumping a bag of Travolta's money out of this high rise. People on the street are going to be flocking for it because at the, at the time they had they had shot a scene with me and a kid who was with the Make a Wish Foundation and I I wish I could remember her name but you know her wish was to be in a movie so you know selfishly I'm like they're not gonna they're not gonna cut the Make a Wish kid. I'm golden. It was a young woman in a wheelchair and my scene was scooping up piles of money off the ground and throwing them in her lap. I'm like this is great. I'm in the movie, but then <laughs> we go, we were at the New York City screening, the press screening. I'm elbowing Matt in the ribs. I hear it is, man. Okay, there he is. He's dumping the money. And and then the, they don't cut to the scene. So I was definitely crestfallen. But a year later, I get a copy of the DVD. My parents are visiting in New York. My mom's like, show me your scene in the movie. I'm like, ugh, cut. <laughs> don't remind me. She's like, well, just show me, show me where you're supposed to be. But then it turns out a little bit they'd filmed earlier of me running down the street, trying to clutch at money in the air. She, she's like, no, there you are right there. And I was like, oh, holy crap. You're right. I am. <laughs> I am in this movie. Cause I didn't, I thought that that was just like a, they had done this and, but I didn't think they were actually filming. Cause the PR person, you know, who was kind of my handler that day was like, okay, Jesse, we're not going to have you running. We're going to put you over here with this, this young lady who's with the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So anyway, I am in the Thomas Jane Punisher movie, which I did not actually find out to a year after the fact. How about it? Star of the silver screen, Jesse Thompson. There you go. Even if the cover had very limited distribution, it was still pretty awesome to have a wizard feature cover story yeah now i gotta ask your other claim to fame within the pages of the magazine among many of your co-workers who you've mentioned was having your head photoshopped onto many amigo body <laughs> and doing ridiculous and inappropriate things uh, in these panels so what can you tell us about the photo sessions for taking those headshots that then had to be inserted into different stories you know it's funny because i thought you were gonna say pat thought it was really funny to have my head photoshopped on top of women's bodies as well. (laughs) 
There's at least one, I think at the beginning when we had the little by the number section, one issue, my head is on Uma Thurman from Kill Bill's body. Another issue, they had me on Alicia Silverstone as Batgirl's body. But about half the time, in terms of the Mego photo shoots, you know, my buddy Zacho took all those photos. And about half the time, I didn't even know what they needed my headshot for. I assumed it would be for the bullpen section in the back. Sometimes Pat would be there kind of art directing. And he'd be like, okay, Jesse, all I need you to do is look slightly to your left and have a look of terror or you know, pretend like you just saw a very sexy woman or pretend, you know, you're doing this, this, this. And I'm like, okay, okay. And I kind of had a reputation for being a ham. And I know Andy Serwin talked about this a little bit in his interview, how, you know, early on, even getting your photo in Wizard was a big deal. At least it was for me, because that was one way you felt like you were getting to know the staff and you were kind of part of the club. You probably have some of the actual issues in front of you. Yeah, well, the, well the, there was a running feature, you know, the, it's in place of just like a bullpen profile there was the bullpen true tales of the wizard staff right and so a lot of times it'd be you and mike cotton just like showing up in ridiculous situations you know and <laughs> we'll be posting some of these to social media for people to get the flavor of it here but i mean there's a particular one where you actually just come in and clean house like you're just beating everybody up and you're there's like too many mike cotton clones and you're like <laughs> you know so it's, it's pretty hilarious <laughs> There was another one, I think it was Tales from a certain convention where someone someone had mistaken me for Andy Kubert. Um <laughs> Even I can actually I, see that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Andy probably has 15 years on me. But uh, it was at you know one of the wizard after parties, which sounds a lot swankier than it actually was. But some rando came up behind me, and gave me a, a bear hug, and was just like Andy. And I was like, <laughs> oh, what? And you know, I was a pretty big guy back then. I was definitely over 200 pounds, and this guy was even bigger. So a, a, you know, a big dude come up behind me, giving me a bear hug and lifting me off the ground. You know, it was a little, it was a little out of the ordinary, a little unsettling. So I'm just kind of like, and I turn around. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I I thought you were Andy Kubert. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what I do to Andy Kubert. That's what what always happens to Andy Kubert. Random people (laughs) run up and give him bear hugs and pick him up on the ground. Get manhandled. Now, what about, I mean, these were obviously planned and scripted shenanigans, but what do you recall uh, just going on either after hours or at conventions, just some of the wackier times that you're allowed to share? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, uh, up until working for wizard all of my convention experiences had been you know your basic motel basement comic shows not that the wizard cons were on the level of san diego or anything but i had never really been to kind of the multimedia extravaganzas where you walk into a giant open show floor and you're like oh oh, oh my goodness and yes there was a great deal of of tomfoolery and shenanigans because after hours everybody would kind of meet at the same hotel bar fans and creators alike wizard guys we had to kind of you know we would we we had, would work the wizard booth and work the wizard prize wheel and kind of interact with people all day. We would, I mean, we would work in two or three hour shifts, but you know, you really had to be on because, you know, you want the fans to feel appreciated. And, you know, there's kind of this expectation that the wizard staff, those guys are wild and crazy. There were many, many a time where I would show up if I had to do the first shift at the wizard prize wheel, even if it was like 10 a.m., I would be super hungover. And more than once, if, you know, if we had a fan who would spin the wheel and, you know, a lot of times it would land on physical challenge, I would say, okay, here's five bucks. Your challenge is to go get me an orange juice because I, I need vitamin C. 
get me an orange juice and I swear I'll make it worth your while. So, you know, I would send some, and you know, every time, whatever fan, they'd be like, Oh, oh yes, sir. Oh, this will be awesome. So they'd scurry off, come back with my orange juice. And I would basically give them one of everything. I'm like, Oh man, thank you. You're a lifesaver here. Have 20 different wizard one halves. Here's five different exclusive figures. You're just, you're a lifesaver pal. Thanks. Here you go. Well, Jesse, I'd be your gopher right now. What do you need? What are you thirsty <laughs> for? I'll, I'll take a drive. I'll get it over to you. I'll postmate it to you. How many witch blade one halves would you like? Cause you know, that was the thing too. The, the giveaways at the Wizard Prize Wheel were typically the exclusives that hadn't really sold all that well, yeah. or that they thought, you know, hmm, we, you know, I think we thought we were going to sell a lot more of these uh, Havoc figures or Kitty Pride figures than, <laughs> than we actually did. The conventions were kind of weird too. Weird meaning fun for me because once your your booth shift was over, you know your your job was to kind of find whatever company contacts you know who were there at the show, meet up with some creators you were friendly with, try to get the scoop on what was coming up that maybe we hadn't reported on yet. But you know at at the time I was the Dark Horse Comics contact, and if I wasn't on booth duty, I would you know I'd go over to their booth and be like, hey, what are you guys doing? You want to go to lunch? Or, no, we have plans. Or you know they would actually be at their booth doing their jobs or looking at portfolios. So I would just have hours to kill on that show floor. So I would just got to be a fan, you know, half the time I'm at a wizard convention, you probably would have found me digging through quarter bins, you know, like I was when I was eight or nine. I never really lost the love to do that. And all of my buddies like Chris Ward, Alex Segura, Ryan Panagos, Ricky Purden. All of these guys, Zacho, Justin Acklin, we were all comic fans. And every night, you know, before we would go down to the hotel bar, we would meet up in somebody's hotel room. We'd have drinks of our own. We would just kind of sit around. We'd spread our hall from the day on the bed. Yeah. <laughs> like, me and Ricky, especially. I think Ricky was probably the biggest dollar bin diver next to myself. So would be like, oh, man, what'd you get today? What'd you get today? And we'd kind of be like, can you believe we got, we got paid to do this? <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, then there was, you know, a little bit of dragging, you know, hotel lobby furniture into elevators and running amok, acting a fool. Because, you know, we were all in our early 20s, but still old enough to know better. (laughs) But (laughs) playing the convention king and clown at the same time. For sure. Now, do you recall any particular, like, drama or any, like, scandal in the industry? You know, like, just something that was like a big headline for you guys and in general, and maybe related to a particular comics imprint that launched just as you were hired in, which was Black Bull Comics. The bigger one for me was was Cross Gen. Okay. And I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll circle back to Black Bull too. But at the I remember even when I was freelancing for Wizard, Cross Gen got a lot of coverage in Wizard, which was a little outside the norm because you know Wizard still superheroes were very much the bread and butter. And I was like, man, what they keep, they're really hammering home these Cross Gen books. Do you think they were just trying to chase like the next image comics? Were they hoping to get in on the ground floor and be the conduit to the world for that? No, CrossGen was just buying a lot of ads, a <laughs> lot of ads. I think Mark Alessi was the guy who was behind CrossGen. I think they were based in Florida and they had a weird like nine to five model. Did you ever hear about this? Like, uh, yeah, that like that literally they moved all the creators down there and it was kind of yeah. just like you work at the office, get your work done, and then yeah. You're just yeah. paid a salary or yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah, I'm Mark Wade. I, you know, I from nine to five, I'm writing ruse <laughs> or whatever else. But CrossGen, they bought so many ads, and every month we would struggle to because I'll be honest, CrossGen had its 
fans, but in the wizard offices, all in all, we were just not big fans of those books. You know, they just weren't Trinity angels and whatever uh, else. There just weren't a lot. I mean, ruse. I remember, you know, Wade did some, you know, I, I dug ruse way of the rat and the path were some of the martial arts books they had for the most part, the wizard staff, we just weren't really sci-fi and fantasy comics guys, but we still had to rack our brains to figure out, okay, what are we going to do? We've got to, we've got to cover cross gen somehow. They, they don't have any presence in this issue. So that was, you know, for me coming into the magazine and coming to the industry, that was a big of a, a bit of a wake up call again, showing how naive I was, but I was like, Oh, you, you know, it is pay to play. If you buy ads, you're going to get coverage. So it was kind of a challenge for us to figure out how to cover some of these books that we weren't huge fans of, but also we didn't want to seem disingenuous about it either. And Black Bull, I, you know, when I started full time in 2002, I think, let's see, probably just a pilgrim had launched or was just about to launch. And I, the only book I remember was Beautiful Killer, which Phil Noto had worked on that one. There was like Gate Crashers, I think. Oh, was yeah. The other one. So I think fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, by the time I started kind of the, the Black Bull imprint was petering out. Beautiful Killer came out with Phil Noto. I remember we did like a, I think a one page interview with Phil and showed some of the art and we probably did an eight page preview of that book. But, uh, you know, Black Bull was not really on my radar. <laughs> neither, okay. neither as a fan or, uh, or as an editor. Now, so that brings us though to as you as we talk Black Bull. You know, there was the editor in chief, the publisher of Black Bull Comics, was one Garib Sheamus. And so we must ask you, Jesse, Garib Sheamus, cool or fool? So I'm going to do my best not to give the evasive answer here. <laughs> I think I'll take a page from Andy Serwin's book because I really think Andy gave what I thought was a really compelling, honest answer. Garib, 100% not cool. But in terms of being a fool, I, I would say he was more of a tool. Um, <laughs> here was my issue with Garib. Garib was, with the, my few interactions with him, he was always perfectly pleasant and polite. He clearly had no idea who I was. I'm certainly not alone in that regard. Even though I wrote the letter from Garib for a solid year and sent it off to him every month. And those were always such a pain because... You know, Garib just, he didn't want too much of him. sounds ridiculous to say too much of himself out there because he was kind of a, a shameless promoter. But all he wanted his letter from the editor to be was just a recap of what was in that issue, you know? So it was basically like, even though you had the table of contents right there, you would still have, oh, we're on the set of Spider-Man 2. It's crazy. We can't wait to see it. But my big, biggest issue with Garib was that he he didn't read the magazines, because that was Pat's job. Yeah, I mean, Garib just had no idea real... He knew who the big-name creators were who were coming to the conventions. But in terms of what was happening, really, what was happening in the industry, or even, you know, what we were doing in the magazines, it was not his thing. He was more focused on the convention side and other avenues. I mean, I can remember he would... <laughs> But if he would have an interview with another publication, like let's say the New York Times was like, oh, we want to do an article about female comic creators. You know, Garib would call one of us up and be like, hey, hey, I've got an interview with New York Times in 20 minutes. Tell me some females who are working in comics right now. <laughs> so it would be like, well, OK, uh, Gail Simone's doing this. Devin Grayson's doing this, you know, and it was kind of like, dude, seriously, you, your name's been in this magazine for 10 years. You can't even talk about females of note in the industry. So that was. That, that's kind of why, to me, Gary, 
they're kind of a tool. So for you guys, you know, yeah, you're coming in as fans and you, you love the industry, you love the medium, and maybe he's more big picture, high level. He's not, yeah, down with it every month. He's not got a subscription to anything. He's not, you know, reading the comps that come into the office. That's just not where he's at at that point. So that's, yeah, that's so interesting to say. It's like, yeah, come on, you're the head of the big comics magazine, but you currently know nothing about comics. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. All right, well, then let me ask you this. For you, what was then the greatest perk of working at Wizard? Well, I know there's there's been some talk of the Wizard Warehouse and how it was, you know, almost Raiders of the Lost Ark-esque and just how much stuff was back there. And, you know, how we, you know, we, we if we wanted to go back there and find a, a, a madman action figure, that, that was that was great. But for me, it really was these friendships that developed and that continue on to this day. One reason I've been kind of reticent to come on the, the podcast is... You know, these guys who I consider my best friends and my brothers in so many ways, Alex Segura, Chris Ward, Ryan Panagos, Dave Paji, Justin Acklin, Zach Oat, Andy Serwin. I know I'm forgetting so many more. But, you know, when we were all there together, we were we were in the trenches. We were firing on all cylinders. I would not have made it this far, certainly in my career, without the support and the friendship I have from those guys. So they mean the world to me. And I, again, I appreciate you guys letting us tell the wizard story. And, you know, from selfishly, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to, to just be able to hear from them again. Guys, I'm going to do better about staying in touch. I love you. Now, what then led to your departure from Wizard with issue 172? As you were listed in the masthead there as Jesse, have a great life in Tennessee, Thompson. So, yes, I did return to Tennessee after, I think, just over three and a half years as a, a full-time staffer. Gosh, I think by the time I left, I was features editor. Yes. So, you know, it, it wasn't really anything too dramatic with the magazine. I mean, at that point, I could see the writing on the wall to some extent extent because at that point it was 2005 the internet was certainly a, a big thing we were constantly getting scooped by newsarama and uh, the the year before that not to get too serious but my wife and i had been in a terrible car accident in new jersey oh wow. uh we recovered but we were basically hit head on by a cable truck uh she broke her knee i broke my hand and then that wreck my cell phone got smashed i couldn't even remember any of my local buddies phone numbers they were all on my phone word of the wise or old man thompson giving some advice here always keep a paper copy of important phone numbers in your wallet kids the only number i could remember was was andy serwin's because he lived in the same apartment complex and andy and i would call each other constantly like hey man are you at home can i come borrow a dvd or hey man i made some chili will you, you want to come down and eat some yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so after this wreck my wife and i were really feeling very disconnected from our families in tennessee and you know at that point i was married i was 26 and i knew a that i was never going to be able to buy any property in New York while working for Wizard. And at the time, I felt like I'd gone as far as I was going to go. Because I was like, Brian's never leaving. Joe Yannarell is never leaving. Pat's never leaving. <laughs> Little did I know that, you know, all three of those guys you know, were kind of unceremoniously dumped in the few years after that. But, uh, you know, also you, you asked earlier about drama. There was one big thing that happened in 2005 where I was really like, you know what? God, Wizard, not the magazine, not Pat Joe Bryan, but the company itself, mainly the, you know, I think this probably came from the convention folks, but there was a huge controversy in 2005 over, over Heroes Con. 
Do you remember this at all? No, I, I haven't heard about this. Before. So Heroes Con, North Carolina convention, kind of a beloved, you know, smaller show. Every year attracted tons of creators, tons of fans. So apparently Wizard decided it wanted to get in on that action and was eyeballing starting a Wizard World show in Atlanta on the same weekend as Heroes Con. Their thinking was, we'll do this in, in 2006. And keep in mind, Atlanta was only like four hours away for where Heroes Con was. So it kind of got out like the, the big convention, evil convention force that is Wizards trying to stomp on this beloved smaller show. And I was like, Ugh, this is just gross. I mean, it, it did not affect me personally and my day to day other than, you know, I was hearing from creators and publishers who I worked with and was friendly with like, hey, dude, is this really happening? Is Wizard doing this? This seems really crappy. I was like, yeah, you're right. That is crappy. So that was one thing where I'm like, you know what? I, I think I'm done. I, I don't really want to be associated with this. At the time, I said leaving Wizard was the best decision I ever made, but I would always say going to work there was the second best decision I ever made. Other than marrying my, my wonderful, beautiful wife and starting a family, you know, I think leaving Wizard and going to work for Wizard are two decisions that are very high up there in terms of good calls. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So how did then working for Wizard affect your future career? Did you stay connected in any way to the world of comics? No, I mean, so when I quit, my wife and I moved to Nashville and I did not have any leads. So, you know, I, I know I just talked a big talk about, oh, Wizard did this terrible thing to Heroes Con. I don't want to be associated with him anymore. But then not having any income, I still freelanced for, <laughs> for several months after that. And, you know, my, my first job after was working for a music magazine in Nashville called Performing Songwriter. And, you know, just the fact that you know, it was it was available on newsstands, but it had a smaller print run than Wizard. So just me being able to say, oh, I worked for this major industry publication. It was a monthly, this many pages. And I was one of the editors who made sure it came out on time. That definitely helped me get on with another magazine pretty quickly. People were always very entertained. When you say you work for Wizard, you know, the majority of people, unless they're comic fans or, or pop culture aficionados, you're going to get a funny look, you know, like you work, wait, you worked for wizard. What does that mean? Do you work, did you work at a Ren fair? Did you, <laughs> did you work for an actual wizard? The, the wizard connection definitely helped me get on with uh, maxim.com where I was an online editor for. Oh, wow. About that's a, that's a, a whole a different interview. Oh man. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I kind of I kind of call that my lost weekend, <laughs> which is what when when John Lennon and Yoko Ono split for a bit in the in the early 70s, you know, Lennon Lennon called that his lost weekend. I kind of feel like Maxim was that for me because I'm like, did I actually work there? Was that because at the time Maxim.com was trying it, they were trying to build it out as a, a destination for original humor content. You know, I think trying to make it a funnier die type of thing. So I did lots of list type articles and goofy stuff. But uh, yeah, my my supervisor there, he hired me to kind of be the funny comic guy, more or less. So uh, so yeah, it definitely helped me out there. And when I moved back to Chattanooga, my hometown in 2011, I wound up going to work for a healthcare marketing company of all things. But my end there was this guy, Wade Sane. I know you've heard Wade's name a couple times. Yeah. I think I think Lars Pearson talked about Wade at length. Wade was also from Chattanooga. And I, I worked with Wade at Wizard, and we would constantly be like, what's up in Chattanooga? What are you doing? Ha, 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 Because he still uh, was involved with the price guide a little bit. But Wade 
I had no idea he was working for this healthcare marketing company, but the hiring manager saw Wizard on my resume, knew Wade had worked at Wizard, went to him and was like, hey, do you know this guy, Jesse Thompson? Uh, he supplied, I think you guys work together. And Wade was like, oh yeah, Jesse, he's great. So uh, so Wade helped me get on there where, uh, where I, gosh, I was with that company for over six years. Wow, small world. Yeah. Small world. And today I, I remain in the healthcare space. I do corporate communications for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. How about it? It's been quite quite the <laughs> career journey from Rebecca Romaine to corporate communications. Who knows? Maybe someday you will get her to do a PSA or uh, some type of promotional thing. Be like, hey, remember back when I was on set with you? But no. And so is now let me just ask this. Is there a question about your time at Wizard after we've gone through this whole journey? Something I should be asking that I'm not asking. A question that I think it applies probably for, you know, kind of cranky old comic geeks like me who are no longer in the industry. But I'm curious as to how many people, you know, who worked for Wizard and kind of felt like they were chewed up and spat out to some extent, or maybe who left a little disillusioned with the industry itself. I'm curious how many of them found their way back to comics as a hobby or because I'll be honest, when I when I left Wizard, I was like, Ugh, I feel like this whole industry is kind of gross. I don't want anything to do with it. You know, I was also broke and couldn't afford to buy comics. But it took me a couple of years where I was like, oh, no, no, these comics are still amazing and incredible and great. The, the storytelling here is amazing. Why Why would I ever give this up? So, yeah, I'd be curious to hear from, you know, some of my former colleagues, you know, who, who are no longer in the industry. What kind of brought them back if they ever lost a love for comics? You know, what kind of brought them back into the fold? Yeah, you're right. That That is a very interesting thing to consider. Yeah, when you're on the inside and the mystery is taken away. I know Doug Goldstein said specifically, you know, he's like, kind of lost my love for comics because I saw how the sausage was made, you know, the mystery was gone. But but yeah, but so that's definitely something we can look into in the future. But for you then, looking back on it all, what do you think, just objectively, if there is such a thing for you, what is the legacy of Wizard? This answer's kind of twofold because I, I think... A lot of people, when they think back to Wizard, maybe their memories are fond, but they're also like, ugh, that was, it was all about speculation, or all they did was promote bad image books, or have lots of misogynistic humor. But for me, the legacy is, it was a magazine that, the magazine itself, Wizard, and this goes for Toy Fair, this goes for Inquest, this goes for Anime Insider, every staff involved with the day-to-day putting out that magazine had a genuine love for comics or a genuine love for toys or gaming, whatever it was. And I hope the legacy is that when people pick up those back issues, even if some of the humor hasn't dated all that well, or if some of the content has you scratching your head, my hope is that the legacy that people reading it still go, oh, well, I can tell that this was put together by people who had a genuine love for this medium of storytelling and were excited to get the word out to other people. Another sidebar, I'll just quickly say, you asked earlier about articles I'm really proud of. Uh, this isn't really an article per se, but Wizard used to have the, the Halloween costume contest every year. In 2003 or 2004, I think this kid, again, I wish, this is a kid, I wish I could remember his name, that he dressed as Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe, and it was an awesome costume. We could not believe, I mean, this is this was the days before, you know, cosplay was a thing, but this is before you were seeing really detailed, incredible costumes, but... It was this seven, eight-year-old kid who had like the most amazing Snake Eyes costume any of us had ever seen. And we were like, this kid wins. 
this this is awesome. I think we put his photo on the cover of the magazine. It was small down in the corner. And at the time, the Wizard Prize Closet, the Wizard Warehouse, you know, it was full of stuff, full of swag. And we got so much stuff, particularly toys, that, you know, they were they were maybe aimed at a younger audience. So people didn't really want the free stuff. This kid, I remember, like, I think it was me and Andy went to the prize closet or just went through the warehouse. And I think we filled up probably 10 cases full of, you know, grand prize winner. This kid gets everything. And the email I got from his dad was just like, you know, that was one of those times I'm like, oh, we did we did something good, you know, like hopefully we fostered a love for for the hobby for this kid. Cause you know, the dad was like, seriously, there were so many boxes on our porch. We couldn't even get in our front door. So I'm like, we did something good for one kid pat on the back for us. But that's, that's really a memory that, that jumps out as, ah, you know, I, I hope that's the legacy of wizard too, that just people took away from it, a sense of a fun and a love for the hobby. And yeah, I hope that's the legacy. Fantastic. Well, Jesse, we want to thank you so much for being here and yeah, sharing your thoughts and your experiences. And we really covered a lot of stuff. So if people want to continue the conversation with you, if they want to find you online, if they want to get geeky and talk about some old comics, uh, where can they find you? (laughs) This probably won't come as a huge surprise since I describe myself as a a cranky old comic geek. I am not very active on social media, but you can find me on Instagram, uh, jessetnt, all one word. You're just going to see lots of photos of of old records and old comics and probably of my kids doing silly stuff. But uh, yeah, or plugging the day job, you can check out bcbstnews.com slash insights. It's the Blue Cross blog, but I do a lot of storytelling there and lots of employee profiles and, you know, try to carry over some of the storytelling and editorial stuff I learned at Wiz- at Wizard over into uh, into the day job as best I can. I was going to say, at least for April Fool's Day, put up a fake profile for Dr. Donald Blake. Or uh, Dr. Stephen Strange, you know, just for the fans out there. (laughs) Man, internally, at least, you know, I will say Blue Cross does some April Fool stuff every year. And somehow I got, well, I know how, I got roped into write all of that April Fool's content because people know, oh, Jesse used to do this with with superheroes (laughs) at his old job. It's crazy, too, how... You know, if you had told me 30 years ago when I started reading comics that, you know what, when you grow up, when you're in your 40s, you're going to be talking about a Shang-Chi movie and your coworkers are going to say, hey, who's Shang-Chi? Explain to me, because he's in this movie that's out right now. Explain to me who he is and what he means in the grand scheme of the Marvel landscape. I would have said, are you, <laughs> are you kidding me? We don't, even, we don't even have a Spider-Man movie yet. We're talking about getting Shang-Chi? Wow, it's quite a journey. You have come full circle. Now the geeks are on the rise. Well, thanks again, Jesse, and thank you for listening to this edition of The Wizard Files. As always, our personal invitation to all the other Wizard staffers out there, if you've been filled with nostalgia listening to your former co-workers share their tales from inside the bullpen, then hop on the mic with us. Your story is valuable and is sure to entertain. I can tell you that next time around, we have a very unique interview and that we will be speaking with Sean Ani, who who ran the toying around section for quite a while in Wizard Magazine, but also was connected to so many other realms of the collectibles market. His insight is fascinating and very fun. So you're going to hear some stories you haven't heard anywhere else. Be sure to tune in for the next episode. In the meantime, stay connected 
connected with us on social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. Are you subscribed to the YouTube channel? Have you checked out all the content over there? Go find Wizards Podcast on YouTube. And of course, we want to hear from you on our Apple Podcast page. If you can go leave us a five-star review, tell us what you love about the show. Let other people know why it's a fun time to be part of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. We would sure appreciate it. But until next time, we're closing the files. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.